You are listening to the audio podcast of Gethsemane Baptist Church, located in Long Beach, California, pastored by Eli Reynolds. Exodus chapter 20. Hey, be in prayer for Jacob Kubitschek, wherever he went. There he is, right down here, heading back to school tomorrow and uh, up in Wisconsin. Aren't you glad you're not going to Wisconsin tomorrow? Yeah, that's what I thought. And uh, so he'll be traveling, I think, through St. Louis up into Milwaukee, and there's that big storm warning and all that. So if you could just be in prayer for him. I'm sure he doesn't want to miss any classes at all. He wants to get back for every single class. So let's pray that he gets there, okay? Exodus chapter 20 tonight, we're starting a brand new series, which I am super excited about, uh, entitled Foundations of Morality. And uh, we're dealing with the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments, also known as the Decalogue, deca meaning ten, log meaning words, so ten words, really, but uh, the, the, dec- the Decalogue is what's sometimes called. We're talking about the Ten Commandments, and we're going to look at chapter 20 of Exodus, and, and uh, if you got your pen, I want you to start writing some things down. There's some good stuff here, and uh, we'll read it in just a second, but before we read that passage... Uh, you can find the Ten Commandments in actually two portions of Scripture. You can find it in Exodus chapter number 20. You can find it in Deuteronomy chapter number 5. Uh, the Ten Commandments, you'll notice if you'll write this in, the Ten Commandments were written on stone, not clay. So when the finger of God wrote these, he wrote them down on stone, not clay. You say, well, what does that matter? It, it, it's a sign, or to me, a symbol there of permanence and a symbol of importance that it wasn't something that could be changed or washed away. It was God was saying, hey, these are important, but, but why are they important? Why are these ten singled out? Well, I do want to tell you that uh, I believe, and well, I'll get to that in a minute. I want to steal my own thunder there. But um, if you'll write this in, the first four commandments deal with our relationship to God. The first four. Now, Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 summed up the entire law uh, into two commands. And he summed them up with, uh, thou shalt love the Lord thy God. And the second is likened to the first, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. So Jesus summarized the entire law in those two commands. And the Ten Commandments are actually divided into those two subjects. So the first four commandments deal with our relationship to God. And if you do some quick math, you'll know how many commandments are left. Eight, that's right. The last, no, the last six commandments. I hope nobody wrote eight in there. The last six commandments deal with our relationship to man. Thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not, all of those, okay? And they are in the right order. We have to have a a, a relationship with God, a love of God, if we're going to correctly treat one another right. So let's pray briefly, and then we'll read our passage of Scripture and dive in tonight. Father, we ask for your blessings upon the message this evening. Guide us through the Word of God and into some truth this evening. May we see things in a new light that we've maybe not seen them before. And, uh, God, we pray that you'd help us to live better with more godliness each and every day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Exodus chapter number 20, verse number 3 says, Thou shalt have no other gods before me. And that's the first commandment. That's what we're looking at tonight. But let's continue reading so we get all of them in here. Here's the second. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. That's why you don't see pictures of saints or images of, of uh, anything like that that we're worshiping here tonight because the Bible's very clear on that. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. There's a third one. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Here's the fourth one. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And we're going to be doing, going week by week through these, so we'll explain what they're talking about. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt not do any work, uh, thou nor thy son nor thy daughter nor thy manservant nor thy maidservant nor thy cattle nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. So God didn't need to rest after creation. It was a picture for us. And again, we'll talk about that in three weeks. Number, verse 12, we see the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. The sixth commandment, thou shalt not kill. The seventh, thou shalt not commit adultery. The eighth, thou shalt not steal. And the ninth and tenth here, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And then verse 17, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. Now, why did God give us the law in the first place? Well, that was given to Israel. Yeah, but it was given to Israel to the world, given through Israel is more accurately. So why did he give us this? I want to show you three things quickly here. God gave us the law to establish a standard of righteousness. If you'll write that in, to establish a standard of righteousness. The, the law and the Ten Commandments are really the foundation of Western civilization. Where do we get morality from? Where do we get the laws in our country about murder and different things? And now we've got a lot of them bent in our country and others. But uh, the, those are Judeo-Christian values. Much of what we see of morality in our world today comes from the Judeo-Christian values that we find in Scripture that God gave. But God's law should, uh, uh, the, the morality that his people are supposed to have. He's showing us how we're supposed to live. Now, here's the thing. You say, well, no one can keep all the law, and you're exactly right. Because the first thing the law does is establishes a standard of righteousness. The second thing it does is expose and identify our sin. That's what the law does. So it establishes the righteousness. Hey, you have to live to this perfect standard if you want to obey the law. And then we realize, oh, we can't do that. So the law is now our schoolmaster saying, you're a sinner. You're a sinner. It's exposing the fact that we cannot live perfect and keep the law. And, and I gave you some verses there you can look up later. So you say, well, what, what does the law do then? The law shows us our sin. Paul said in Romans 7, I would not have known lust if I didn't know the, the Bible said not to lust, or the law said not to lust. I wouldn't know uh, this or that if the Bible didn't say not to do it. So it's, it's showing us a standard of righteousness, and then it's saying, but you can't live up to it. Well, why? Well, then the third thing here, to express our need of a Savior. What's the law do? It tells us this is righteousness, and then that shows us you can't live up to it, and then that shows us you need a Savior. So that's what the law is doing. The law is to show you your sin, and the law is to show you that you cannot live a perfect life. You can't get to heaven based upon keeping the law. Uh, by, the works of the flesh shall, uh, by the works of the law shall no... Uh, no I'm getting that mixed up. I think it's... By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. 
Eli, thank you for writing that in your notes there. Okay. By the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. So by, by keeping the law, you can't, you can't get to heaven that way. You need a Savior. And the law that God gave, as we read it and we see, oh, man, I'm not doing that. It's showing us you need somebody that transcends it, that, that, that uh, fulfills it, and then is able to die for your sins and pay for you to get to heaven. And Christ fulfilled the law. Christ bore the curse of the law for you and me. So that's why the law was given. Uh, keeping the law can't save you because we can't even keep it anyway. The law is like a mirror, okay? At some point today, you probably looked in the mirror, although some of you I'm not sure. But at some point today, you probably looked in a mirror. And when you looked in that mirror, you may have noticed some things that needed changing, you may have noticed that the hair needed to be combed or the teeth needed to be brushed or whatever it may be. You may notice, you know, sometimes our kids will come in from outside, they got dirt all over their face. So you go to the mirror and the mirror reveals what's going on, but you don't wash your face with the mirror. No, you get the water, you get something else, a cleansing agent to clean that. And so what the law does, what the Bible does, is it reveals, hey, there's some dirtiness, but you have to go to the cross to get the cleansing agent. So that's what the scripture is telling us here. There's no salvation in the law. Now let's look at that first command. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. The word gods in Hebrew is the word Elohim. We use that term, Elohim, when we say the word God. So we're referring to God, Elohim, three in one. And so he's saying here, you, you can't have any other deities, any other beings in your life that you worship or that you serve. Take your Bible here, and if you want to hold your place here, you can. Go forward a couple books to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6, this is a very important passage of Scripture. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, every Jew would know these verses. If they're practicing, every Jew back in, in these days, in the Old Testament days, would know this passage of Scripture. There's a very important passage of Scripture here in Deuteronomy chapter number 6. Look, if you would, at verse number 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart, and thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, when thou risest up, and thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine hand, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes, and thou shalt write them upon the posts of thy house and on thy gates. That what you just read there, if you'll write this in, is called the Shema. S-H-E-M-A. The Shema. In Jewish services, they would say that daily in their morning and evening prayers. It was the beginning of the most important prayer in Judaism. Shema, the word, means hear. And it's really the first word of what you just read, hear, O Israel. So they said, we're going to pray the Shema. So they're praying, and they're starting with that word, hear, O Israel. Very, <clears throat> very famous, very powerful passage of Scripture. Why? On your sheet. These verses tell us that Jehovah God is God absolutely, he is God alone, and he is the sole authority. That's what they're declaring there. And hey, I agree with all that. 
God of the Bible, Jehovah God, is God absolutely. There is, there, uh, he, there is nothing in him that's not God. He is God alone. There are no other gods. He is the sole authority. He, he, there's no one else that has power. Uh, like, he has power. Only, the only power people have are things he gave to them. So that is the Shema, and we, uh, we would affirm that. We believe that about God. In our world today, there's three main beliefs there's three main beliefs about God or God's up. Polytheism is the first one. Poly, many, theism, beliefs about God. It's the belief in or worship of more than one God. That's wrong according to the Bible. There's atheism, the belief that there is no God. But what we believe according to the Bible is monotheism, one God. The belief that there is only one God. And that is monotheism. So polytheism, a lot of religions are polytheistic. They believe uh, the Hindu religion has, what, two million gods? The Egyptian religion, we'll talk about in a minute, over 2,000 gods. You know, you look, go, to the, go, to, uh, go from California and head west across the Pacific, you'll find a lot of countries that have thousands and millions of gods that they serve. Well, according to the Bible, that's not accurate, that's not right. Another wrong belief is called pluralism. Pluralism is the belief that two or more religious worldviews are equally valid. Religious pluralism accepts multiple paths to God or gods as a possibility. In other words, it'd be like believing that the Mormon God and the Islamic God and our God are all the same and it's all good and they're all true. So we're being pluralistic, and we don't believe in that. It's, it's pretty simple uh, uh, what, what the Bible teaches here. Now, why am I saying all this? Here's where it gets interesting. I hope it was already interesting, but here's where, to me, it gets super interesting. The children of Israel were coming out of a nation of polytheism. They were coming out of Egypt, and they were heading to, if you fill this in, to Canaan. So they're coming out of Egypt, where there are more than 2,000 gods that they worshipped, and they're heading into Canaan, where there are a bunch of gods that the people of Canaan worship. So they're in between these two nations and lands where there are multiple gods. No wonder God started the Ten Commandments with this one. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. There are none others. You know, they're all little G gods. They're not a big G god. There's only one of those. So no wonder he started with that. Many experts, as I said a, a minute ago, believe that the, uh, Egypt had over 2,000 gods that they worship. Now, when I was in sixth grade, they made me take a class in my public school. They made me take a class, class on mythology. Anybody ever have to take a class on mythology? Okay, a couple of us, all right. So we had to go through the Greek gods. We had to go through the Roman gods and all that. And I admit, it was kind of interesting at times. But uh, we did a little bit of Egyptian gods, and we even learned how to write our name in hieroglyphics. You say, how do you write your name? I have no idea. That was a long time ago. But we learned it. Think about some of the gods that were worshipped in Egypt. I'm sure you have all these memorized. I'm just kidding. I don't even know how to pronounce some of these, all right? There was the snake god, Nahabkeau. How you said it. He was the original snake, is what they called him, and gained power against harm by swallowing seven cobras. He was a very important god to the Egyptians because he was a god of the afterlife. He reunited the dead with their living soul. There was the snake god Wajit, which uh, was the, known as the protector of lower Egypt and even in Goshen where the children of Israel were. 
This was the cobra symbol. When you see Pharaoh and he would have that cobra symbol on his head, it was a, a symbol of the goddess Wadjet, Wadjet, however you say that, all right? But uh, that's who it was for. Write this in, Osiris. Osiris, very famous, uh, one of the most important gods of Israel. He was the god of fertility, vegetation, and agriculture. The Nile River, which was their life source, was known as or considered to be the bloodstream of Osiris, giving life to the empire. Heket was the frog goddess, which symbolized childbirth, midwifery, and resurrection. There was a, uh, and we're going somewhere, so just stay with me now. Geb was Egypt's chief earth god. Ayuseaset and Kepri were goddesses of insects. Kepri was depicted with the head of a beetle in the drawings and things. There was the cow goddess Hathor called mother of the Pharaoh. And then if you'll write this in, the Apis bull. Now what's interesting about this Apis bull is that you will see this again in scripture, the Apis bull. Do you know where you see this bull? You see it in Exodus 32 when Aaron made the golden calf. And we'll talk about that a little bit next week. The Apis bull was son of Hathor. It was a manifestation of Pharaoh in their eyes. Now, the Apis bull was a literal bull. It was an actual bull that they just worshipped. And, and when that bull died, there was only one alive at a time. And when that bull died, they would mourn it. They would even bury it or, or inter it in a sarcophagus. Up to 60 tons worth of, of gold and stuff would be put in that sarcophagus. For a bull! Pharaoh would take it personally when the bull died because you know, it was a manifestation of him. Unbelievable. There was Sekhmet, goddess of epidemics and healing. Thoth, god of medical knowledge. Isis, goddess of healing. Nephthys, goddess of health. Shu, god of the atmosphere. Newt, goddess of the sky. Nepher, Nepri, Heneb, and Rin, that one were gods of grain. Isis and Set were famous names there, if you've ever studied Egyptian mythology. Uh, Isis and Set were responsible for crops. And then, of course, Ra, uh, or Amun-Ra, uh, was the most powerful god. He was the sun god, most worshipped, most powerful god in the Egyptian pantheon there. And then, of course, there was Horus. You've seen pictures of Horus, the little face of the, looks like a wolf or a horse or something that he is. Uh, he was the son of Isis and Osiris. Uh, the god of kingship, healing, and protection. And there were literally thousands more, thousands more uh, of gods, and a lot of interesting ones. You know, there's the one that has, like, the face of a crocodile, and it's a pot belly, and it's a hippo, and, you know, there's all these kind of things. Why are we talking about Egyptian gods, though? Say, well, Pastor, you're supposed to answer that question. I'm about to. These are the gods that the children of Israel would have known because they lived in Egypt for 400 years. Would you write this in? In fact, they may have worshipped them. The Bible tells us that the children of Israel were worshipping false gods. So the, the list I just gave you, every one of the Jewish people would have known these gods and more. Uh, I, I put the references on your sheet there, but I'll read them to you. In Joshua 24, 14, the Bible says, Now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in truth. Listen to this. This is Joshua. Right before he says, Choose, you know, for me and my house will serve the Lord. But he says this, And put away the gods which your fathers served on the other side of the flood. 
and in Egypt and serve ye the Lord. The other side of the planet, he's talking about on the other side of the Red Sea. Put, put away the gods that your father served when they were in Egypt. Exodus 3.13 says this, and Moses said unto God, listen to this, just keeping in mind all that we've, what we've seen. And Moses said unto God, behold, when I come unto the children of Israel and shall say unto them, the God of your fathers hath sent me unto you. So he's saying, God, uh, you know, our theme verse for the year is Exodus 3.14, the verse after this. But what he says here is, God, okay, you're sending me to the children of Israel, but when I go unto them and when I say unto them that, hey, the God of your fathers have sent me to you, and they shall say to me, what is his name? What shall I say unto them? And in the next verse we have, I am that I am. But have you ever stopped to consider that the children of Israel did not know God's name? Why? They've been in Egypt for 400 years. They did not know who the one true God was anymore. Why? Because they'd been in Egypt worshiping false gods for 400 years. Unbelievable. When you think about it like that, like they weren't just pining away in Egypt saying, we just want to worship Jehovah. No, they had gods they were worshiping. But God still looked at his people and said, I'm still going to rescue you. I'm still going to sacrifice and, uh, and have Moses and Aaron go down there for you. So, even though God's people had forgotten him, and even though God had, uh, uh, and they didn't even know the true God anymore, what does God do? Watch this. Would you write this in? He reminds them that there is only one true God, and Jehovah is his name. Can I ask you a question? Have you ever read in Exodus about the plagues and the miracles? And have you ever read in Exodus those plagues and miracles, those ten plagues and the miracles that surround it? Have you ever wondered why those? Why, that's an, a weird grouping of plagues. Why didn't God just you know, send down the, the thunder and the hail and just say, all right, you're done. That's it. One plague. But he chose ten. And he chose unique plagues. You know why God did that? Why God chose those plagues? I'll tell you why. And if write this in, God was declaring war on the gods of Egypt. In Exodus chapter 12, verse 12, the Bible says this. God says this in Exodus 12, 12. Against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. So when you read those miracles that God did, and when you read those plagues that God did, would you read them keeping in mind the gods of Egypt that we just read about? Moses' rod becomes a snake when he casts it on the ground. Pharaoh's mag uh, magicians throw their rods on the ground. They become snakes. What does Moses' rod do? His snake eats the other snakes. Doesn't that sound a lot like the snake god, Nahabkal or Keu, however you say it, who was swallowed, who swallowed seven cobras? Or the snake god Wadget, who was the protector of lower Egypt where the children of Israel dwelt? And now God is saying, I'm their protector. I think about the Nile River turning to blood. Didn't we just read that Osiris, his bloodstream was considered to be the Nile? He was the god of fertility, vegetation, and agriculture. And so now the Nile River becomes blood and all the vegetation's gone. What was God doing? 
He's reminding them who the one true God is. He's taken out Egyptian gods left and right. How about uh, the, the next plague on the list there? How about uh, the, the, the frogs? Well, there is a frog goddess named Heket. How about the lice, uh, the chief earth god of Geb and, and uh, the goddesses of insects there when the lice and the flies start coming? There's the apis bull and the goddess Hathor, and now we have the death of the cattle. You know who would have died during the time when God put the moraine upon them? The beasts of Egypt? The apis bull would have died because he killed them all, wiped them out. How about the, uh, the boils? Well, there's all these gods and goddesses of healing. What about the hail and fire? What about, uh, and there are the, the goddess of the sky, Newt, Shu, the god of the atmosphere, the one who rides on lightning, supposedly. Locusts, responsible for the gods of grain and the crops and all of that, where they're all gone now. And then, of course, the most powerful Amun-Ra, the god of the sun. So what does God do? He sends darkness so thick that they see nothing. But where the children of Israel are dwelling, there's light. What does God do next? He goes to who the demigod is in that time. Who did the people worship as God? Pharaoh and his family. He was a demigod to the people. And much like Osiris and Isis had Horus, their son, Jesus, or God takes the firstborn son out of Pharaoh's household. What is God doing all on, on this? Every plague, write this in, every plague was a direct attack against the gods of Egypt. Every plague, every plague was God saying, Hear, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one Lord. That's what he's saying with every single one. He's, let me remind you who the God of your fathers is. Somebody better get excited besides me tonight, okay? I'm very excited. I think that's so neat that God is declaring war to say, hey, he's pushing the competitors out of the way and saying there is no competition. I am God alone. That's it. There's nobody else. There's no one standing up to him. It is just him. So now look, if you would, back at Exodus chapter number 20, and I want you to see this and we're done. Exodus chapter 20. Knowing that, that God just declared war and said, hey, against the gods of Egypt, am I coming? I'm coming against them. I'm going to bring judgment upon them. Uh, he's reminding his people who he is. He brings them out. They get around the throne, uh, the, the mount. Moses goes up to get the law, and he comes down, and look at chapter 20, verses 1 through 3. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. What's he saying? Don't, don't go back. Don't go back. I delivered you out of bondage. Those aren't real gods. I am the Lord your God. Don't go back. Can I just tell you tonight that your God is the God? Your God, if you serve God of the Bible, Jehovah, Yahweh, you are serving the one true God. He suffers no rivals. There, there, there's no scrabbling for the throne. He's unchallenged. He's going to rule and reign. 
And no one's ever going to get them off that throne. Don't worship any other god. So, well, pastor, I wouldn't do that. You sure? Matthew Henry said, whatever is esteemed or loved, feared or served, delighted in or depended on more than God, that, whatever it is, we do in effect make a God of. You depend upon your money? You depend upon your work? You fear something more than God? What you're doing is you're making a God of it. I just want to remind you that you've been saved by the grace of God if you accepted Christ your Savior. You, your, your father was the devil. Now your father is God. Don't go back. Don't, don't serve false gods. Tonight, are you praising the one true God? Are you giving him the glory that he deserves as the one true God that suffers no rivals? Are, you, are, are there in your life tonight, are there any other gods? Is there something you're trusting in more than you trust in God? Is there something you love more than you love God? Is there something you serve more than you serve God? Is there something you fear more than you fear God? If you do, then in effect, you've, you've made that your God. And I want to encourage you tonight to say, look, this is the foundation here of everything else. you got to know who God is. you got to know who he is. He is the one true God, and he has just shown us in a very powerful way that there is nobody like our God.